That's Boogie. Um, so this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman. I'm the director of We Be Imagining. This is the second season, episode two of the We Be Imagining podcast. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm here with my co-host, Alain Mandel. What's up, Alain? Hey, Khadija. It's really good to be back. My name's Elon Mandel. Uh, I use he, him pronouns, and it's really good to be back recording again. And poor Elon, because of the HVAC system at Cornell Tech, I got you like under a blanket in a whole fort to try to I get know. this. I gotta send more people the photos of this fort. It actually is hilarious. It feels, it's it's maybe a little fitting that we're talking to Joshua because so much of, of the poetry is like these childhood experiences. And like, I really felt like a kid building this tent fort in the lab. Mm. <laughs> And so, I mean, Alain basically gave it away. We're here today with Dr. Joshua Bennett, and I'm going to read your your like traditional academic bio. And then I just wanted to say a little anecdote about um, your impact on your work impacts on my life. Um, but Dr. Joshua Bennett is the Mellon Assistant Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. He is the author of three books of poetry and literary criticism, The Sobbing School and Ode and Being Property Once Myself, which were both dropped this year. Um, Bennett holds a PhD in English from Princeton and an MA in theater and performance studies from the University of Warwick, where he was a Marshall Scholar. And on that note, I wanted to say, so every once in a while, you know, people ask me to give a little academic talk. And for a while, especially last year, I, I was um, opening up with Still Life with First Best Friend. Um, and I had to stop because the poem is so good that I would just create this bar that the rest of the talk didn't meet. Didn't match, um, nah. but I just, <laughs> that Danny in the scrum in his hands are meadowlarks, and I just, I never learned so much about rugby until this poem, mm. so I really appreciate everything about your work, um, but with that, I wanted to give you a chance to say a little bit about yourself and your own words. Well, first of all, what a beautiful intro. My goodness. Thank you both for making space. Ilana's uh, got me thinking about the Batman tent that I grew up in. Uh, with my sister, which is where I learned to read. So I guess that's one place I can begin um, as a little brother, as a father-to-be, um, as a writer, an abolitionist, um, and as someone who does everything I do for the, the love of my family and my people. You know, So I'm glad to be here with y'all today. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Welcome to the show, to We Be Imagining. And I just wanted to give a shout out to O, because Elon and I, before you hopped on the call, we were both talking about the title. And I just love it because it's both that that historical past tense. And it's not, we demand reparations. And it's not also, it's not F you pay me, but it kind of just implies like we just owed. And then, you know, there's not even, there's not even an article to indicate exactly who it is. And there's this idea of the debt that America owes um, to Black folks, and then there's the indebtedness of America to Black folks, but it, it's just so heavy. Um, and with that, I kind of wanted to talk to you about, and maybe this connects to your class that you're teaching this semester, but on one hand, you have these titles, The Sobbing School, and How Could Someone Be Alive Today Without Thinking About Grief, um, Being Property Once Myself, Owed. And on the other side, I really appreciate how you talk about um, your work is not a project of Black death and trauma and suffering, even while we need to make that legible, kind of like the Christina Sharp point about what's what's an excess of the wake. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what is this project that you're embarking on um, in this moment where for a lot of people, um, sometimes the entry point into Black studies is just seeing Black people as a subject of violence and rather than the agency and the whole kind of full dimensionality? That's a great question. I mean, I'm glad that you brought up Christina because I recently was writing about my relationship to Christina Sharp's work and uh, being a graduate student at Princeton, but living uptown um, in Washington Heights and seeing her give a talk at Barnard one day where she opened by saying, I don't show images of dead Black people. And how in that moment in 2015, that was quite a revelation for me, um, because I think even then we were already immersed in a kind of ongoing social practice of sharing images and videos of Black people uh, being ritually killed by vigilantes and security guards and police officers, right? And I think Christina was one of the first people I saw publicly and in the midst of an academic presentation, very strongly uh, strained against push against and decry uh, that that practice. So for me, my, my larger project is just interested in the beauty of the Black social sphere, 
I'm interested in Black exuberance and celebration. And I'm interested in, in Black forms of knowledge, Black ideas, and the shapes of Black ideas, which is really something I've been trying to think about uh, probably my whole life. I mean, I've been writing poetry since I was four years old. My mom still keeps a, a box of uh, my early childhood writings in our in our house. If that gives you a sense of the kind of a family culture and writing culture I grew mm-hmm. up in. And I think I've just kept that preservationist sense that she raised me with this entire time. You know, I'm, I'm trying to operate out of a an archive of air, you know, of memories and improvised performances. And I'm trying to give them to the page in a way that at least in some small sense, um, recreates that that beauty and the beauty that's possible when Black people gather together. No, thank you. That's so that's so beautiful. And I'm wondering what one of the lines that really struck me from Ode is when you're talking about Mike Brown as Jesus Christ and how you connect it to this idea of indeterminacy. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that, because I'm just really conscientious of the fact that so much of our audience are people in data and tech policy, um, people designing AI, machine learning you know, models, maybe automated decision-making systems adopted by the public sector. And this idea of um, the calculability of life seems very counterposed to this kind of indeterminacy you explore in your work. For sure. I mean, so... My first book of literary criticism, Being Property Once Myself, theorizes this idea a bit. So there I'm talking about Blackness as a caesura between human and animal life. Um, The moment the Black person sort of appears on the scene, we appear as this blur, I think, not just between human and non-human, but life and non-life. And so I think there's, there's something about living surviving, thriving in that position that makes something unique available to us at the level of literary criticism and poetics. What does it mean uh, when your position is considered as this kind of midpoint between these various forms of life and non-life? What becomes available to you um, at the level of expression, performance, sociality? So the the indeterminacy of, of Mike Brown as a type of Christ, I think, is just that, right? That at one point, he is the boy slain in the street, right? He is his parent's child. And at another point, uh, for me at the time as a young man in New York City, I felt like he was my cousin. I'd never met Mike Brown, right? But but to me, he was family. And then in another sense, thinking about uh, this child unjustly slain by the state, he was a, a type of Christ in a religious sense. And this is something that came out for me in conversation with a Darnell Moore, who was talking about abolitionist theology at the time and being in religious spaces in Ferguson where people were explicitly thinking about Mike Brown in these terms, right? Thinking about Renisha McBride in these terms, thinking about Trayvon Martin in these terms, right? As types of Christ. So for me there, I'm really just trying to pick up on my tradition and, and make my proper contribution because that too is what's owed to Black people, like a kind of deep theorization study, consideration, and care. Um, and all of my titles are trying to do that work too. The Sobbing School, that's a reference to Zora Neale Hurston, being property once myself. That's a line from a Lucille Clifton poem. And Ode, you know, originally began as a series of poems, you know, about my big sister. The first Ode in the book is called Ode to Pedagogy. And it's about my big sister teaching me how to fight when I'm a little boy. But also, you know, June Jordan had uh, some odes towards the end of her career, some of the last poems she wrote before she passed. Uh, but those were kind of battle rap odes. Like she has uh, these uh, odes to Eminem, <laughs> where she's kind of battle, <laughs> battling M. And, uh, you know, my, my book, are, the odes are in a kind of different spirit than that. But nonetheless, you see the kind of mark of um, of Black writers and, and Black women writers in particular in the way I'm, I'm trying to frame some of the ideas from the outset. Just just hearing you talking about June Jordan doing battle raps, it, may, it reminded me of Nikki Giovanni having Thug Life tatted on her arm. And that For was sure. like the most emotional moment on TV that I had ever experienced. I mean, really on YouTube that I experienced. Um, but that also has me thinking about, I don't know if you tuned in last night, but Mariam Kaba and um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore were at the CUNY Grad Center kind of discussing, discussing abolition, in part an introduction um, for people who might have you know, encountered this 48 hours ago, but also getting into some of the really deep questions around what exactly are we building here? And they were talking about um, abolition geographies and this idea that we have to dismantle and tear down oppressive systems. But part of that dismantling is is a reconfiguration Mm -hmm. of how we find new ways of relating to each other. 
And I'm just curious about this, this, this reimagining and what do you, and, and exploring like the, the black expressive sphere and black culture and black exuberance kind of, what do you see? How are you thinking about, I guess, the relationality of life in this moment where we're, where at least some of us are aiming towards abolition? For sure. I mean, for me, my identity as a prison abolitionist, or should I say my praxis as a prison abolitionist and police abolitionist, it just comes from the the texture and tone of my life growing up. My, my older brother was incarcerated. Um, a number of my cousins have been incarcerated over the course of my life. When I was a, a little boy in school, the police would get called on us if we acted up on the bus. We had metal detectors in my school. We had armed security guards in my middle school. And so I think I knew from a very young age that something was inherently wrong with that. And once I got to high school, uh, to an elite private school, and saw they had none of that, no metal detectors. And in fact, people were taking you know, trips to Puerto Rico uh, as, as field trips for our Spanish class. And I was going there with the children of billionaires that spared no expense uh, for SAT prep and all these sorts of things. It just occurred to me um, that the police were not doing the same thing to everybody right, even at 14, that my classmates had a completely different sense of what police were for and how they behaved. And they were at house parties doing heavy drugs and the police would come and nothing would happen to anybody. Nobody would get locked up, no one would get beaten, no one would get killed, right? So in terms of, at the level of relationality, I think one about the actual sort of iron fist of the carceral state um, and the way in which we have to imagine other ways of being and living towards each other in terms of when we allow for windows for the carceral state to enter in. It's already all around us, but as a matter of praxis, for example, I don't call the police. You know, I've never called the police. Uh, or rather, once I did call the police, and this is in the book of poems, but I called the police when I was a kid because I just had a fist fight with my dad and I wanted the police to come kill him, right? Um, and the fact that that's what I believed police did as a boy, I think is telling um, and it's been useful for me. So I think at the level of relationality, when we talk about abolition, we're talking about mercy and we're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about a kind of care that people don't necessarily deserve, at least as it pertains to the metrics we already have in place. And I think that is, a, that is an intervention that has to take place at the level of the symbolic order. And that is an everyday practice, that's spiritual and cognitive work, right? As Sylvia Winter reminds us, right? We are we are not merely bios, right? We are story and flesh. And so I think about that every day. <laughs> I think about the spiritual and cognitive work that needs to be undertaken in all of our individual lives in terms of the way we treat each other. If we're gonna get anywhere near abolishing prison and abolishing the police, right? Can you abolish the the cop in your head, you know, and in your heart? As the phrase goes. Hmm. The other thing that I'm curious about is that in listening to this conversation with Gilmore and, and Miriam Kaba yesterday is that, you know, sometimes people evoke invoke the the structural to alleviate their individual agency. And yes. there's all these ways, you know, community becomes abstract, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that really caught my eye when I was um actually I listened, um, I really appreciated listening to the audiobook version of of Ode. And there's this part where I think you're talking about at Princeton and somebody reaches to touch your touch your hair and you dodge out of their way and grab their wrist, wrist and talk about the choreography of anti-colonialism in the academy. And <laughs> yeah. I'm just such wondering. A good, such a good part. <laughs> I was cracking up. I know. I was like, these are like academic yo mama jokes. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, what does it mean for you to identify as a prison abolitionist? And then, like, honestly, at Dartmouth or, you know, even in a different way for Gilmore at, um, at CUNY grad, like, what does it mean to exist in these institutions and not there's a part of it that's like, gen, you know, siphoning these resources to, to support the ongoing work. But how do we how do we move beyond that? Like, how do we expand the capacity to bring even more people in different ways of knowing in? Yeah, I mean. This is a tough question because I, I want to be honest about it. Well, one, thank you for reading the, the work so closely because I really did smack somebody on the wrist that tried to touch my hair just because that's, <laughs> that's that's how it is. Like, don't touch me. I don't even know and you And that's like an everyday. That. Right, right, right. I just don't know you like that. Why would you try to touch my hair? Uh, calm that down. And so, yeah, I mean, at Dartmouth, I'm very blessed in terms of my students. I mean, they're they're fantastic. Very few of them have been exposed to some of these ideas. Like when I bring uh, Ruth Gilmore or Mariam Kaba 
or Sylvia Winter or George Jackson or Jonathan Jackson's story into the classroom, I think that is a kind of sea change for them. It's a revolutionary opening. And for the most part, they've been with it. I mean, granted, I'm their professor, right? So there, there's a kind of power differential there, of course, that I think we always need to, to take to heart and really seriously think about. But when I read their writing, the writing they produce, um, both in their sort of discussion posts and their emails to me and their finals and midterms, I'm always taken aback by the real willingness my students have to embrace unfamiliar concepts in the name of certain kinds of um, moral truths. Because I find that that's what brings my students to my African-American literature classes, right? Often they're actually trying to work out a certain set of moral and ethical questions around how they can be, frankly, better people, how they can be better towards one another. And often the moments of sort of outrage they experience are because they've never been taught that the Black National Anthem exists, for instance, right? And they'll say, well, I got a quote unquote elite education. How could I be unfamiliar with so many facets of a history that is supposed to be mine, right? How have I been uh, sort of actively taught to be violent towards Black people in particular, right? This is Carter G. Woodson's argument, right? That miseducation on the one hand demotivates Black students, right? But it also trains white students, right? It miseducates them as well. It trains them um, into thinking that Black people have no space in history, right? Um, and that they're not even really alive, that they have no worth or, or value. And so part of what I do is I bring the work into the classroom and I really try to have my students think about their lives outside of solid identity categories and think instead about what are the stories they've told themselves about what the world is like um, and how can they be more flexible? How can they be more truthful and how can they be more loving? And starting from that point, it's been, uh, it's been productive, I think, so far. And it's been beautiful to see. I think one of the things that, that, you know, we talked about the title already, but when we talk about owed and what, what we owe each other and what we are owed to, um, I think that that often gets lost, right? Like we all owe each other things, right? Like this is part of being in society. And you talk about both these like intimate experiences from your own life, but also just some, some like inanimate objects and like how you are owed to them in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think that's like a deeply relatable experience, right? Like I have never worn a do-rag, <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, I also can think to these like things that are symbolic and a part of me, mm-hmm. um, even though they're just things. Yes. Yes. I mean, <sighs> Look, so this starts for me in some ways, and thank you for that. This starts for me in some ways with Fred Moten and reading Fred Moten as a junior in college and that that first line of In the Brick, right? The history of Blackness is a testament to the fact that objects can and do resist, right? I think that's the line that opens the book. And um, of course, there he's talking about being the descendant of commodities, right? Of enslaved people that were considered objects, considered commodities, considered chattel, considered property. But I also really do think, I'm going to just get a little weird here and it's fine. I I do think there's something about (laughs) inhabiting that position that really has opened me up to the the lives of things. Um, And the lives of things that are considered to have no interior life, no spirit, Um, you know, to be poor in the world or to have no world, to be worldless, right? To to sort of gesture towards Heidegger, right? If only slightly. I've just been thinking about that for a long time, that sort of objects resist our gaze and they they resist our understanding and our language. They resist our nosiness. And I'm really interested in in their opacity. You know, this part of why I write about animals is is just that. It's it's the kind of opacity we see in the the face of the animal, right? This this bridge um, that language and and a, a caress, you know, can cross, but never the the whole way. And I and but I'm interested nonetheless in the attempt and in the gesture and in what's made possible in, in that blurring. So when I write a poem like Ode to the 99 Cent Store, right? That's that's in some way just about value and what those places taught me to think about value, that in the 99 Cent Store, you could get almost everything you needed. And, and that was a, a beautiful thing. Of course, there are exploitative practices attached to 99 Cent Stores. We, we all know that. But as a kid, it means you can get your crayons and your notebooks for a price your family can afford and you can have your own little party when you're off by yourself. And 
I wanted to celebrate that, that space. You know, I wanted to celebrate the ankle weights and the do rags and I wanted to celebrate black hair. I mean, that, that's, that's really the spiritual core of the book. Sorry, I'm just pausing on that. I grew up loving Jack's 99 cent store. So I think a lot about dollars. And also now my kids, we, we moved back to Brooklyn and like my daughter's always like every day, can we go to Dollar Tree? I love Dollar Tree. Dollar Tree. Yeah, Dollar yes. Tree is good. Dollar Tree, Family Dollar. There's so many, you know, different, different visions. One of my homeboys, he had a band in college called Family Dollar. So uh, <laughs> shout out to Jamile. Yeah, yeah. Well, she always, they always have, um, what is it? Like baby shower balloons, at least at, at this Dollar Tree on Utica Avenue. And so mm. we always bring home these little baby shower balloons that she loves, which is, it's kind of cracks me up because I got a lot of kids. I'm like, no more babies. Um. <laughs> That's so sweet though. What beautiful taste to love like baby shower balloons. It's such a specific aesthetic. Like as we're talking, the sign for my son's baby shower is behind us. So I feel like that's, we're in the vibe, you know, the, the baby shower vibe right now. Yeah, let's talk about kids too. I'm curious. Um, I feel like you're my friend on Facebook, so this might be an assumption, but um, <laughs> your son, your son is mixed, right? Uh, yeah, my uh, my wife is is Puerto Rican. Um, and I just asked that, like, I'm thinking. I mean, one is that I'm I'm mixed. My my mother is white with blonde hair. My father's Ethiopian, and um, I've just been like thinking a lot about what that means during, you know, Rachel Dolezal version two incident recently, Mm. Um, because a lot of her almost, you know, some of that stuff is, you know, it's not new. People been cosplaying blackness till the cops come for, you know, millennia. But at the same time, you know, a lot of us, you know, a lot of light skinned black people, you know, are racially ambiguous. And I've just been thinking about like, I'm curious what you were thinking about this racial ambiguity when you're so intentional um, about like defining and like shedding light on black life. Like, what mm. does that mean for you as a parent? Even, you know, before he, w- he was born, you might not have known, you know, exactly what, because part of it is phenotypical, right? Like, what Yeah, of course. Like? Of course. Well, he's still on the way. He can arrive any day now because my wife is uh, 36 weeks pregnant as of Sunday. So, yeah, but that's so a great You've been talking qu- about... You've been talking about her being pregnant all this time. I just assumed the baby was born. So congratulations. Pre-congratulations. No, no, thank you. Thank you. I just been talking about it from jump because it's so surreal. So, I mean, and almost the entire pregnancy has taken place uh, during the pandemic, which has been so surreal too, is um, just thinking about fugitive practice. Like my wife having to sneak her phone in to the ultrasound because I wasn't even allowed to stand in the hospital lobby. Um, So sort of the first time I saw my son, you know, uh, in full force, you know, as I've said elsewhere, is a, you know, my wife kind of holding the phone up, and the radiologist conspired with us, which was so beautiful, and just seeing him, you know, seeing him uh, there on that screen, hearing his heartbeat, was one of the great moments of my life. Um, I haven't experienced anything else quite like it. But yeah, I mean, just on your question about phenotype, I think it's complicated, right? Because this is what Gwendolyn Brooks says about the geographic power of blackness, right? Black people look all kind of ways. My, my grandfather was a very, very light-skinned man with green eyes, right? His kids were a- across the spectrum of, of, of color and shade. And I've thought a lot about, as someone whose mother's side is very dark-skinned, whose father's side is very light-skinned or brown-skinned, um, the fact that, of course, like complexion has consequences. And I think now we're having, yet again, you know, another set of sort of difficult conversations in public about uh, the violence of colorism, which is very specific as a certain facet of, of racism, right? As, as we all know, people's prison sentences, right, are differential depending on their skin color, right? People are hired differently, especially in the American Academy, uh, depending on their complexion, right? This is something I thought about a lot at Princeton when I was seeing job talks as a, a brown skin, uh, black graduate student and just thinking, wow, are there I know there are dark-skinned people in the field, but I'm not seeing a lot of them um, here, right, or, or brought into this space. And it was something that, you know, I voiced, and that was difficult for me to to really just sort of um, to think about in a critical way. You know, I'm, I'm my mother's mm. uh, darkest child, and that's just something I've known since I was young because that was in the air, <laughs> you know. So, and I've also always been cognizant of the way that my darker-skinned friends were actively policed in school and in public in ways that I was not. The ways that 
my colleagues who are performers were read differently on stage if they were darker skinned. Whereas I might be read as passionate, they will be read as angry or scary, sometimes quite openly by people in the audience as well as our peers. And so I just think the colorism conversation is an important one. And I think for my uh, my folks who are who are lighter skinned, I think there just has to be the choice always to choose blackness, right? For people like Du Bois and Malcolm, I think we're they're not often talked about um, in this frame, but there's a certain kind of way that they chose the denigration of blackness every day by choosing the beauty of black people, right? They insisted that they be included a- among the masses of black people. Um, they made it clear that that was their primary political concern, especially for Du Bois toward the end of his life. But you know, the Malcolm we know, this brother with light skin and red hairs, is every day out there. Um, making sure that we know that he's cast his lot with the Negro people. Um, and I think that that's work that's necessary for all of us. Um, for those of us who maybe operate along another vector of power or access, those of us that are middle class or work at elite universities, I think there's a similar type of choice that has to be made to everyday align ourselves uh, with the masses of Black people, right? So yeah, we got to think about it and talk about it. And I definitely plan on having those conversations with my son, no matter how he looks, right? About sort of anti-Blackness um, in Black communities and Latinx communities, because that's that's something he's going to have to navigate, you know, uh, in a very different way than his father. Yeah, it's heavy. I mean, you know, so a couple, I, there's a couple, I have a lot of thoughts on parenting, especially parenting during a pandemic with no child's care and in the decline of an empire with the lack of governance. Yeah. Um, but Part of what I was thinking, going back to that still life with first best friend, I mean, look, to be honest, you know, we be imagining at Columbia and there's like, you know, there's kind of, there's kind of a war that we're having, right? Like, can we frame this and speak this the way that we speak it at an institution like this and direct yes. resources to people like us? And then there's, you know, I think about your poem about Danny and how do we not, I, I see the path where people like you and I maybe can get into a position where we can write or we can say a poem or tell stories about someone like Danny. But how do we create the space where Danny deserves to be there too? And not just categorically, but in the, like, I think about that poem when he's like, you do school, Jay, someone starts problems out here, you call me. And I relate to that too, because I'm not coordinated. And I definitely had those friends that would be like, you know, you you distract them, we fight. And, you know, there's so much training and some of it happens along color lines, too, about like, you know, what kind of what kind of strengths do people have? And is everyone an intellectual? What does it mean to be an intellectual? And so just thinking about, you know, who's who's my immediate community? Like, yeah, definitely black people. But I think about like the people who live in my building on my block and then, you know, professionally, it's the academy. Right. Like and not just in general, not just Columbia in general, but these, you know, whatever, a dozen group of people that I work with. And I think about how do those values translate into the immediate? I don't know. That's a little all over, but I'm just curious what you think about that. No, that's a great question. I mean, one, I would just think about if, if Danny even wants to give a talk. So I have a question about form and genre, right, on, on that front. Because that's a quote, again, from when we were kids, right? When we were teenagers, and I would visit home from college, and we're, you know, back on the block, and, you know, I, I'm maybe back to my old ways or something, and, and Danny's looking at me like, man, you do school, like, college boy. <laughs> like, don't don't worry about what's happening out here. Somebody starts problems with you or your family, like, let that like leave that to me, that is part of our bond, right? And that is loving labor, that is gentleness, that is tenderness, that is care. And I think part of my job is to name that, right? And to also make space, of course, for living, breathing people to come into my classrooms if that's what they if that's what they want, right? To represent their positions and the way they see fit. But also to say that, you know, maybe not everybody wants to do that. And maybe what we do isn't that great. I, I think about that a lot, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> that I, I think I'm, that there's just many parts of the body, right? And there's a lot of work that needs doing. And a lot of it doesn't happen in a classroom, certainly not a university classroom. And I think especially as someone that's been working to be a professor since I was 17 years old, that's been a sobering, but also liberating revelation. Right. Is that a lot of the work that needs to happen is happening in K through 12, it's happening on the street, it's happening in houses of worship, it's happening in people's homes um, and in community centers and on the ball court, you know, that um, there's a network of us doing this work in different places. So that, that's part of how I think about it. 
you know, is bringing those stories, those images, people's actual voices into the classroom, but also recognizing that what I do is a very small part um, of the work that needs to be done to create the world that I that I aspire toward and that I dream of, you know, every day. No, I feel you. I feel you all the way around the academy, but I also, you know, sometimes I feel like the barber needs a sabbatical too. I don't know. The sabbatical and the tenure part is my favorite part of the academy. I'm like, mm. I'm just like, I'm into the jump in that part. But it's that space. It's not necessarily like the the genre of giving a talk, like, but you know, how do we subsidize the dice game and how do we, mm. you know, not just not just lift it up as as this poetic moment of, you know, bonding and care and play and joy, but also it does come down to the money, right? You know, how do we create a calculus, like a public budget in which that's recognized as I see what you're saying. So you're talking about how do we make sort of material changes in the world so that at least the kind of benefits for some of us at elite universities are more generally dispersed? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's part of it. Okay, yeah, I mean, that's that's key. (laughs) I think that's real. A, A lot of it is clearly aligned with the theme of the podcast, right? Is um one I think is the work of imagining it, giving language to it, and then trying to figure out what are the differential roles of of organizers, teachers, and artists in dispersing that message. Right. They, I think we've already seen this happen with abolition and reparations over the past two years in particular. I feel like those frames have entered public discourse in a way that still blows my mind every single day. Like I remember when I would teach on abolition two years ago, and it was still a very unfamiliar concept for a lot of my students. And now that's just not the case, right? People like Mariam and Ruthie Gilmore, at least it's my sense, right? Maybe just on my corner of Twitter. But those ideas are widely (laughs) taken up. Those ideas are in the New York Times. We had presidential candidates, right, talking about reparations during the debates consistently. And I don't think that's going away. And so I think part of what you're talking about with Labor, I, I think something similar could happen, right? Like, because it sounds like in some ways you're imagining a, a world without work or a world with very, a very different, a very different organization of of everyday work, um, and especially forms of work that are not often seen as work, gig work, um, the barber shop, the beautician, etc. How do we create space for those folks to work and live differently? And I think that's that's necessary work that demands doing. Yeah, definitely. It makes a lot of sense. I guess, I mean, I have a lot more questions than answers, so maybe I haven't really thought through the full question, but that definitely makes a lot of sense because, you know, I feel like I've, me and you might be around the same age, but I've come of age being poor for a long time. You know, most of the adults that I knew didn't work. You know, a lot of the other single parents were going through the shelter and nobody had, but people weren't just sitting around and watching TV. You know, people Mm -hmm. were doing each other's hair and passing down stories and cleaning up and, you know, helping somebody get off of drugs and, you know, mm-hmm. watch somebody's kid and, you know, hustle in the welfare office. People are not just sitting around. So I guess that's part of the question. Like, how do we, you know, provide a life for people to continue doing this important work when it's not seen as a profession, you know, something mm. professional? Yeah. And they have daycares and they preach and yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you on do that. You, do you, Go ahead. do you feel like that process like really involves academia all that much, right? Like the change in discourse around abolition, so much of that was like really like on the ground protesting that I think like, yes, of course, like you had these intellectuals writing these things, right? To like disperse the ideas, but like, I don't know how much the things that we describe like will come through academia. Maybe, maybe, you know, but like, I'm also at Cornell Tech, right? Which is like the most like business version of academia. Mm. And I like I just it's really right, the the goal of the podcast is imagining. And it's so hard to imagine those things being rooted in a space like like the room I'm in right now. You know, though, we started off talking about Batman and your Batman for it. And so I have this whole thing about Batman and that is crazy to me. You know, Batman really worked with the cops, right? And he's Batman's like, the villain catching- of that story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's smashing up people, stealing bread from the store or whatever, working to protect Gotham City. He don't got no powers. He just got a lot of bread, right? And who's yeah. his enemy? The Joker, the Riddler, 
you know, yeah. people who use words to unearth power. And that always reminds me of Anansi and this this power of storytelling. And, you know, I, a lot of my naivety has been ripped away about academia, but in, in some kind of romantic, like, corner of my mind, the question of, like, what's the role of the academic is, you know, the not just somebody who tells the story, but helps people collectively make meaning out of their experience. Because it's not just your students who you're talking about coming to, to, to Dartmouth and maybe never being exposed to the Black National Anthem. But for so many people, you have your immediate life experience, but you don't necessarily get exposed to this whole like theoretical framework in which to make sense of all of that stuff that happened. And that mm-hmm. that's the powerful part to me. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's... An- clearly like a, a connection there, right? Like between the the people on the ground, some of whom are college students, but any number of whom might just be on the internet, right? Where maybe you're the person who uses your university login to distribute Fred Moten and Stefan O'Harney, right? Or Angela Davis's work or Asada Shakur's work in a different way. I mean, I think part of what we can do as people who are attached to universities is really just help siphon the billions of dollars and resources that these corporations hold um, as a way to, one, literally feed people. Because Khadija, part of what I was thinking was just, we have to get money and give it away. You know, mm-hmm. I think you just, you think you just have to pay people. I think that's one way you do it. But I think you also feed people with ideas. You know, going to college changed my life, in part because I was a Black studies major, right? And- mm-hmm. My vision of why people went to college was to get a good job, right? That's why my mom had always said, she said, you go to college, get a job. And until I found Black studies, it hadn't occurred to me necessarily that I could go to college to think about who I was in the world and who my people were and how we could transform the present order of knowledge, right? And on another more practical level, the Africana studies, you know, it was a, it was a center at the time and now it's a department, but it was a place where you could take a nap, Right. It was a place where even people who weren't Africana majors, but were just Black people having varying levels of success at our university could come rest and be seen um, and come to know and understand themselves and see other Black people, see familiar faces, could party, could chill, could think out loud. And I think that is another kind of work that's important. And I was someone that was sneaking my friends into my dorm and, and they would sleep on the floor and I would bring them to parties and we would do performances together. So... I mean, the university is not, it's not airtight, you know, there are always opportunities for fugitive practice. And I mean, again, this is a riff on, on Fred, right? But that's the only ethical relationship you can have to a university anyway, is a fugitive one, right? So there are moments you steal away, there are moments you steal resources. And I think that can be radical work, you know, it doesn't have to happen within the walls of the university, but there's wealth there. There's stolen wealth there that is owed to our people. And so I think it's our responsibility to go get some of it and bring back as much as we can. Well, also this question of education is interesting in circling back to the the, the impending birth of your child. Have you thought about, you know, who in this world will you trust your child with, you know, <laughs> to care for them? Obviously, the you know, your, your wife, but I mean... Also, just like, you know, the schools, the institutions, I mean, it's, you know, it's a social, it's a social gathering and, you know, there's so much harm and violence that happens in these schools. And mm-hmm. and now during the pandemic is a real, real question, you know, like the question of homeschooling, you know, it becomes inevitable. But as time, as time goes by, I'm just curious, like, who, who do you trust with your child? Because when it comes down to your, to your kid, that's also tells us a lot. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know me, well, you know a little bit about me. I mean, I, I think about it every day. <laughs> so um, a conversation with Ruha Benjamin, for instance, was helpful where she was talking to me about this kind of pan-African homeschool on Zoom that she discovered during lockdown. And uh, so, of course, you know, I DM'd her about that uh, right after. Ruha was also, she's also one of my mentors and I was her TA during my time at Princeton. So it was good for us to reconnect. I love that Ruha. Front. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely world-shifting work. Um, and again, she's someone I'm very excited to see the way her work has been taken up online because I see those ideas again everywhere. Some of my students come to me asking about the new gym code and saying, have you heard of Ruha Benjamin? And then I get to be the cool professor say, you know, I used to be her TA and we can just talk about <laughs> all this stuff. But but again, these are computer science majors. These aren't even black studies majors, right? <laughs> like they're, they're, I have students that are majoring computer science and physical sciences, ostensibly hard sciences that are reading this stuff because they found it on the internet, 
right? To me, that's that's a very different vision of what's possible within the university. Because then they're going to take that stuff to the tech companies they work for if they go into the entertainment sphere. It really is my sense that that some of that is shifting, where even people I know in Hollywood now are talking to me about reading Robin Kelly, right, on these um, sort of struggle and study Zooms together with people from all across the world. Mm-hmm. And to me, that actually is a difference. And, and I think there's a certain kind of... Um, solipsism and kind of negativity that we're socialized into and into the academy to believe, you know, nothing we can do makes a difference. And that serves, of course, a certain political end, right? And what I think this moment is showing me is not, it makes a difference in spite of us, right? That some of the ideas just take off. Somehow Afro-pessimism took over high school debate over the past few years. And now some of the people who are most fluent in it that I've met recently are high schoolers in Newark, New Jersey, that can run a line back and forth about Sadia Hartman, Hortense Spiller, Sylvia Winter, Frank and Jared. Like they just, they know the stuff inside of Denise Ferreira da Silva. They know the stuff inside and out, right? To me, that's a completely unexpected outcome in some ways of this very dense theoretical work. Um, but, but the work exceeds us. It goes places we can never expect. When I get a DM on Instagram from someone in Australia that's reading my poems, it's, it's a shock to me, but <laughs> These circuits, you know, are unwieldy and beautiful in that way. So just to get back to your question, I think about where my son will go to school every day. I just wrote an essay about this, actually, that's tied to the Black Arts Repertory Theater in school, because um, I'm writing a cultural history of spoken word right now. But it begins with the fact that that's fundamentally one of the questions we've wrestled with historically as Black people. Where will I send my child to school? Um, so in my mind, I definitely plan on homeschooling for how long is up in the air, Um and I would love to send my kid to some kind of like Pan-African uh, space, you know, um, once it's safe, you know, when he's a young child. But in the meantime, you know, we're doing philosophy, math, science, English in the living room, and we're going to figure that out, you know. So, yeah, it's complicated. I had many traumatic and violent experiences at school. I was told I would never function in the classroom when I was five years old. Um, so I hear y'all for sure on that front. I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your experiences with uh, basically the internet, right? Like you you earlier said that your office hours, you go for a walk with students. <laughs> yeah. And I love that. I, I genuinely love that. You said earlier that your project, and I like I absolutely love this, was your project is an archive of air and putting things to, to the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I listened to your audiobook. <laughs> you know, I, didn't, oh, wow. I never touched a piece of paper. Um, and I think that, that like, there's something about how, you know, poetry, spoken word, right? Like how it, how it exists in, in a place with people. Um, and yet you, you seem to have found ways to really connect with people through the internet and really, uh, value some of the ways that ideas are expressed online and, and these kinds mm-hmm. of networks of, of interconnection. Um, and I was just hoping you could talk a little bit about doing poetry on the internet or like being a poet who also exists on the internet? Mm-hmm. Well, that was the beginning of my career, right? I'm, I'm not a poet. I don't have an MFA. I have no formal training in poetry whatsoever. I think I took one creative writing class in undergrad and it was my worst grade in the major was my poetry workshop <laughs> that I took. And so I'm. Have I'm you spoken a, to that teacher again and just been like, "So, what's oh, going for on?" for sure, for sure. <laughs> now he's he's cool. I mean, we have an interesting relationship because he's always been very clear about um, just not believing in me, you know. So oh it's, my it's, God. it's pretty interesting. That honesty can be but, valuable, though. Like it is. Like you're doing, it you're is. doing fine, but like it's just not for me. Right, right. He's just like, yeah, I just don't like any of it. And I know, oh, and, and I'd already sort of built up a name for myself in the city as a a performer, and I I'd already I think maybe even one. Uh, the sort of international youth poetry slam title at Brave New Voices. And I thought I was hot. I was like, man, I'm out here <laughs> killing it. You know, I'm getting 30s and, and all this stuff and the perfect score, you know, it's a perfect poetry slam score. And he would just say, these poems are terrible. Um, and it made me think for a long time that maybe the page just wasn't my medium. And what I appreciate about that window of my life was that I genuinely didn't care. It just didn't matter because when I stepped on stage, it was magic. And it meant that I could connect with people and it meant that I had a way to talk to people. You know, I grew up in a very, very private family culture that was deeply religious. And outside of church and school, I just did not really get to go outside. <laughs> Most of my life was in my house, reading books, reading the dictionary, reading you know, these child 
uh, picture, childhood picture books about Benjamin Banneker and Ida B. Wells and Mary McLeod Bethune and George Washington Carver. And that was, that was my world. And so spoken word uh, really just introduced me to social life in a, in a robust and extravagant and scary and wonderful way. So the, the internet is, is where my career began. Right, my first uh, viral video. Someone just captured it on a camera phone when I was a junior in college and didn't even know anyone was recording. Right, the the earliest sort of remnants of uh, my career as a young poet. I'm 17 years old. I think I have on a Mark Echo button up and some white Jordans and very baggy jeans, and I'm performing in a high school auditorium at 17, swinging back and forth. I mean, my my stage discipline is terrible. But that's kind of incredible to me that, that I can go see myself as a 17-year-old boy by uh, typing my name into YouTube and I can see that trajectory in real time and I can share it with students. I can say, look, with this tools, you know, with these tools, with this skill set, you can go anywhere. Um, the internet changed my life. It made my career possible. I've met so many friends uh, through the internet and... I'm exceedingly grateful for it. There's, of course, a lot of terrible stuff <laughs> that happens on there all the time. It's clearly eroding <laughs> uh, our our democracy in so many ways. But also, and I've also been shamed on the internet. You know, I've had videos go viral and people just launch sort of just uh, profoundly hurtful commentary at me for days at a time. You know, I've experienced a pretty wide spectrum of of things on there. But the fact that people all over the world can hear the stuff, I mean, it's it's special. I, I agree, but there's one thing you're describing, which is this process in which you're live in a space and there's this energy of the space that you were performing in, right. and then it gets translated online. And we're we're in this world now where like that first step is robbed from people, right? Like mm-hmm. because of because of really institutional failures, right? Like like ecological disaster, but then also just like the ways we've failed each other in this mm. time. Not not necessarily us sitting here, but um, and that seems like everything you're saying has a bittersweetness to it, right? Because the, the people who are, who are maybe getting really excited about spoken word may have to try it through zoom. Mm. And I, I, I don't know what that, I, I've never done it, but I, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about kind of the, 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 the change from real life translated to online to just starting from that space to begin with. Yeah, it's just not as good, right? And I, there's not a there's not a way around it. I think you can get really cool mics and good lighting. Like I have a microphone stand and a professional speaker, and I spend all this in a ring light. You know, I spent all this money on the setup, and I think it has a, a a bit more production value. But there's nothing like you're 17 years old at the New Yorican Poets Cafe, uh, participating in a poetry slam. There, there's just nothing like that. And I think. What I miss most about it, I thought it would be crowd noise. I thought it would be applause or snaps. What I miss most is just seeing the energy shift in a room, seeing someone's eyes widen uh, when you say a line that they like. Uh, I miss adjusting the microphone stand and doing the little stretch that I do before I perform. Because now when I read, I, I sit down. I just don't do any of the stuff anymore. And the, the magic of it is, is, is largely gone. And that, that's really tough for me. Um, now even the book, this cultural history of spoken word I'm writing, it closes uh, in lockdown, right? And it's a story about how some of these institutions that help make uh, spoken word a global phenomenon have now closed because of the pandemic. Places like the New Yorican Poets Cafe, the Cantab Lounge in Cambridge, uh, the Mercury Cafe in Denver, I know was in trouble. And I just think a lot about that, right? Sort of the, the way, as you've already alluded to so brilliantly, the way many young people across the world will experience spoken word for the first time now. It's going to be on YouTube. It's going to be YouTube clips. Um, and I don't know if those venues are going to come back or when it will be safe again to do the thing the way we've historically done it. So it's it's heartbreaking. It's not even always bittersweet. Sometimes it's just, you know, uh, super sad and difficult to sit with. I, I mean... I- I just sorry. I wanted to do a shameless plug real quick, which is that We Be Imagining has another pro, uh, another project called Black Siren Radio, um, which is a partnership with WKCR that's about to launch again. 
And so the two things is that one of the people who hosts the series on Thursdays is Advocate of Words, who hosts the online New Yorican open mic every Monday from like 8 to 9.30. And actually, even, albeit I hate Zoom and there's all these sound latency issues, mm-hmm. uh, I've really watched over, this has been going on around since March. So it's been like six and a half months and they have a community. And I just, I really, like you see like 14 year olds coming, you know, just been to a Black Lives Matter protest yesterday and then like wrote something five minutes before the open mic and you see um, 40-year-old white women in Germany who are just like hiding in a corner while their kids are somewhere else, like sharing poetry. And despite my resistance to Zoom, because I was like, I want to see something that beside a class that's on Zoom where people are like voluntarily coming. And it there are limitations. I think there's nothing like being online, but I also think it's like temporal, right? And so... The two th- other things that came to mind is one, the very first time I experienced or I learned about what slam poetry was, is that I used to go to this reform school and writing was contraband. And um, these uh, my counselor would sneak me in books um, and including poetry books. And, and they were constantly talking about slam poetry and they were also white. So I really couldn't understand, but they were always telling me about it. And finally, when I got out, I was like, oh shit, this is slam poetry. And one of the first places I heard it is I went to Harlem Live, that uh, online youth magazine that was on 125th Street above the nail salon next to the Popeyes. And that's where I think I first saw you perform. Um, and you went on tour with Kevin Benoit before, right? Yeah, yeah. I would do those, so Kevin, yeah, those underground songs. Yeah. yeah, so Kevin is the other person on Black Sign Radio. So he's doing a whole another series. And so it's funny how things come. I forgot about that. It's funny how things come full circle. Um, but yeah, I think that the online has all different possibilities. I'm curious, have you ever listened to Andre or read any of Andre Brock's work, Distributed Blackness? No. Oh my God, so good. You would definitely love his book. We had him on the show too, but he basically has a PhD in Black Twitter. Um, and has <laughs> about Black techno culture. Um, you know, I, I'm not as I'm not as good as you remembering all the lines of the book, but it's it's super dope. And he's also a thought leader, I think, on Twitter. So you should check him out. Okay, um, I, I definitely think you would appreciate his stuff. What I yeah. what I liked about what you said about kind of fiddling with the mic is it, it made me think that like one of the problems with the internet is in so many sp- ways it's it's a space without rituals, right? Mm. Like, Yes. You go to a coffee shop and you like you maybe have like XYZ ritual that you do like when you, you know, order your coffee or go to arrange your seat or whatever. Um, and like refreshing Twitter just like doesn't have the same feeling to it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like there, there's no rituals to the Internet. It's all kind of utilitarian. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Ritual and, and ceremony. Right. Which I think are wedded together, maybe even synonymous in certain ways. Yeah, I, I miss the ceremony of it. I miss pulling up to the venue. I miss having a missed call from the organizer and I look up and I realize, okay, I'm in the wrong place right now and I have to get there and I have to rush there and I'm going to throw off my coat and I'm going to slide right into some banter. I mean, I miss those things. And I think even as I develop new practices and protocols to make the most, of course, of the moment. Um, and again, I think it's incredible that so quickly we've been able to develop these other kinds of sociality and other forms of live performance. I think it's okay to mourn, right? To, to mourn that, to mourn what we've lost. Um, I mean, this is a real pivot, but I think even my grandmother died in March, sort of at the outset of the pandemic and going to her funeral on Zoom and then having that link fail and having to go to my cousin's Facebook Live there was something there where the starkness of the approximation and the distinct ways that that approximation fails, I think was just laid bare before me very early in the pandemic. And it it made me let go of, I just had to let go of all sorts of things. I had to mourn my grandmother and I had to mourn the idea that any of these things that I'd dreamed of for a long time, including sort of, um, being present for all these different aspects of my wife's pregnancy. I just had to mourn them and I had to really mourn them or else I was going to be stuck uh, in, in a very painful place. And so I think sort of mourning what is gone, especially for, for those of us that are performers and love performance, I think it's important. Um, and when we come back to it, you know, it'll be a new thing and that new thing will be wonderful, but well, what we had had real power um, and wonder to it. So it, it deserves to be sent off, you know, properly. No fair. Elon and I went to um this is 
this doesn't have the same gravity, but we went, our other co-host, um, Stanley Munoz, it was his birthday. Mm. And so he had a wet ass pussy themed birthday Oh wow! and everybody was, was dancing and playing music. And it was so painful because it was, it was just so the amount of sound delays. And then I was like, why were we recreating on being unable to hear each other on Zoom? Mm. I was like, I miss a lot of things, but this is just, it's so many missed signals. Cause in that moment of, being unable to hear the other person speak, you also are getting like a super, a freezing screen where the music is like jittery and not coming through. So, but this is so much of the problem. And this is again, I think why I'm like, like we be imagining, right. It's that like, we're, we're utterly failing the future, right? Like we are, we are just applying skeuomorphic modes to, to the, to the like new world. And it's always, Mm -hmm. it's always done like this, right. Where, you just take what you know and then you make a shitty version online. And there's so few thinkers who I think are really trying to approach other ways of of being, right? And like I someone introduced me to folder poetry, which I actually hmm. quite liked, which is you create a poem just by creating folders, right? And so you click a folder and the title of the folder is a line of a poem, and then that opens up multiple other p- folders. And and the whole poem is entire. There's there's no actual text. It's only titles of folders, and because folders aren't real, you can create shortcuts, right? So you can create folders that are loops, right? So hmm. so you can tell these totally nonlinear poems that are you could never tell on a page, and it's not amazing, right? Like it didn't. <laughs> it wasn't like the best poetry I've ever read, but it was no. I mean, I'll be honest, right? Like it's 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 clearly like a a, a new thing, right? And like that's mm-hmm. okay. It's like experimental, but like I really appreciated it because it was yes. someone who took the idea that like the medium of a poem on a computer does not just have to be some kind of image of a page with words on it, yes. right? Like there are other ways of doing things, and this idea that like. I went to a party in real life and like, I don't really have a a version of zoom where like, I feel like I'm at a party. So instead we'll do like we said earlier, right? Like this face to face or like face to grid interaction that like doesn't capture any of it, but it's just like the, the like shittiest imitation of the, the old world. Yeah. And we just keep doing this and we need to, we need to struggle to imagine new things and it's i think you're right we should mourn the past right like the mourning step is important because we're not mourning we just keep trying to live it poorly and it becomes this zombie world where where we never actually took the time to mourn the things we've lost we just keep trying to resuscitate them Mm -hmm. and it it's it's um it's something that that i think we all need to do better at (laughs) Yeah, and quickly too, this often takes on carceral forms, right? Like just to stay in the vein of school for a second, uh, our children that are on Zoom school and are told they have to wear uniforms, they have to have their screen on, they have to have shoes on. And it's this weird thing where it's like you have to replicate all of the sartorial performances of being in a school building, even though they're clearly not, right? So what are the ways in which us refusing to mourn also reform? also returns as these modes of, of discipline, right? That are, are painful and cruel um, if we're not careful, right? In what ways are we actually going to redouble the force of the carceral state in our own homes, of extractive labor practices in our own homes? Um, how many of us that don't have to go to an office building anymore, for instance, will now just never stop working, right? We'll work all day from the ostensible comfort of our couch. Um, I think that that psychological step is absolutely key in part to make sure that we're preserving ourselves and the quality of our lives. A child was playing with a toy gun. on a oh, You saw this story? Yes. Like, fucking wild. Oh my God. Yeah. And they got in trouble for bringing a toy gun to school. Just, oh, we live in such a broken, oh God. Um, Sorry. Wait, but I want to, I want to, I want to, one, I want to be conscious of your time because we're almost at the hour mark. Um, but I wanted to ask you one question that's kind of related to that. And then we, we have like a little ending ritual where we just ask our guests, like, who are you listening to reading mm. that you would like to recommend to our audience? It could be yeah. on topic or off. It could be anything. Sure. Um, but the last question I wanted to ask you is kind of going back to the question of animality, which relates to this idea of kind of what does the humanities have to say about technology? 
Um, just because I think like the canonical example of why are human beings different, you know, we can agree or disagree, but is that, you know, that um, we create complex tools and that we can use complex tools and use them in more complex ways than other species. Um, and so the, this, this industry-driven version of tech innovation feels very counterposed to the questions that you wrestle with and being property once myself around animality. And so if the buyers of the tech space are like new and novelty and future and next and optimization, um, animality thinks to me, I think about like the origins of captivity, uh, which you talk about beast of burden, but also this idea that the reimagining is also remembering, right? Yes. And, 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 looking, and looking back as well, or if there even is a back, is it linear anyway? But I'm just curious if you could say a little bit about animality and how you situate that in relationship to time. Oh, wow. That's a great question. I didn't think it was going to take that, that curve at the end. Um, yeah, I mean, there's something ancient in, in what I'm after. And I say this in the beginning of the book, that really I'm after what, what Sylvia Winter's thinking about in terms of origin stories, that I'm trying to give a different origin story for the field of Black literary studies. I'm trying to say in some ways it begins... Of course, in the you know in the the mid the mid to late sixties, but it also begins, I think, on the plantation, in the field, in the exchange between black human beings and non-human animals, right? That 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 actually is also a kind of origin story. That intimacy, that fraught proximity, that is one of the origin stories of a of black literary studies and what it means uh, to be black people composing literature. Um, in the modern world. So I, I think that's that's one thing in terms of blackness and animality in time. That I think the, the way we talk about blackness and animality now, I think always has to foreground um, that bygone period. It always has to bring us back to the sort of material constraints, I think, of the of the plantation, but also the, the worlds we knew outside of it, the, the inside, outside dog distinction and the, the post-emancipation South, or even in the kind of neighborhoods I grew up in where people had dogs and some of them had quite gentle uh, relationships with their dogs. Other people, like DMX, for instance, right, was using his dog to rob people. This is a classic narrative that was recently spun by James, <laughs> right, on a, on his versus battle. And I think my book is also a, about that, like those differential relationships to um, to animals and how they change the way we have to think about the history of the field in a very different way, just because you brought up tech and innovation, and in part also because the animal book is the first part of a trilogy where I'm also trying to think about the mineral and vegetable kingdoms in African-American literature. It brings to mind this interview with the novelist Richard Powers, where he talks about the relationship between trees and AI. And he says essentially that, you know, one day we will be to our AI descendants as the trees are to us, right? They appear sort of insentient and still, but actually they're these robust, complex organisms. And so we actually have to rethink our relationship to trees if we're going to understand our relationship to AI. Um, and I think I have a project that is somewhat similar in its pursuits, you know, which is to get us to really sit and think with the, the stones and the animals and the plants to better understand who we are in the world, but also what sort of radical futures and forms of sociality we can imagine. That it may be um, nothing like what's been available to us in the past, but nonetheless will require um, that we have a knowledge of history um, as we develop these new instruments. Well, thank you, first of all, for, for making this time. Um, every time I've interacted with you, I feel like you're so um, generous with your thought process. And it's so, you know, sometimes we have some academics on. I had I had one person who should remain nameless who came with like a prepared lecture and they were just so uncomfortable kind of just sharing off the cuff. So I really appreciate um, the, your, your, your generosity of spirit and coming on the show. And so I have one last random request, which is, so being in New York, pre-pandemic, a lot of my kids' babysitters were actors and they used to hate, we used to be like, well, can you do a piece real quick? And so I feel a little bit like that dynamic right now, but would you be willing to share, share a poem with us? Of course, of course. Let me see. What do I want to read? And you can adjust your mic and do that whole thing. I mean, like, do the full ritual, right? We're here. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> okay. You know what? We talked about children in school, so I'm going to read a poem called Reparation for my new book. <clears throat> yep. Reparation. Actually, I don't want to read that poem. 
I want to read Ode to the Plastic on Your Grandmother's Couch. See, this is part of what I would actually do in real life. I'll let myself get right up to the this sort of cusp of a poem and then I'll honor the spirit I'm feeling. Ode to the Plastic. Thank you. Ode to the Plastic on Your Grandmother's Couch, which could almost be said to glisten or glow like the weaponry in heaven, frictionless, as if slickened with some Pentecostal auntie's last bottle of anointing oil, an ark of no covenant one might easily name, apart from the promise to preserve all small and distinctly mortal forms of loveliness that any elder African-American woman makes the day they see 60. Consider the garden of collards and heirloom tomatoes only, her long single braid streaked with gray like a gathering of weather, the child popped in church for not sitting still, how even that, they say, can become an omen if you aren't careful, if you don't act like you know all Newton's laws don't apply to us the same exactly. Ain't no equal and opposite reaction to the everyday brawl Blackness in America is. No body so beloved it cannot be destroyed. So we hold on to what we cannot hold. Adorn it in Vaseline or gold or polyurethane wrapping. Call it ours and don't mean owned. Call it just like new, mean alive. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank y'all. And thank you for the snaps. That made me feel great. <laughs> oh, I'm glad that you can hear it. I'm always like, I can't see it on the little bar if it's making it <laughs> Um, no, but that's fire. I appreciate that. So for our conclusion ritual, would you like to share? It could be anything. It could be multiple things, things that you would like to recommend to our listeners to listen to, or it could be an exhibit, anything. Yeah, sure. So I'm reading uh, Looking Like a Language, Sounding Like a Race by uh, Jonathan Rosa. That's one thing I'm reading. I'm also reading uh, Parenting for Liberation, A Guide for Raising Black Children by Trina Green-Brown. Uh, I'm teaching a course right now called Modern Black American Literature education, abolition, exodus. Um, so yesterday I taught a session on Langston Hughes's Negro Artist in the Racial Mountain, which is a classic, but returning to it in these times felt especially powerful. Alongside David Bradley's essay, Black in America, 1982, which I think is one of the best essays ever written on affirmative action. And finally, uh, Sylvia Winter's No Humans Involved, which is an open letter to her colleagues at Stanford University in 1992 um, after the Rodney King beatings. And just reading, reading that again and seeing the capacity, the vision, the care, and the deep abiding love of Sylvia Winter's vision, I think uh, just always brings me back to why I teach and why I think Black Studies has a unique capacity to change the world as we know it. Um, wow, thank you. And this is interesting, no humans involved. I recently found out NHI is also like an NYPD term for how they classify certain types of crimes. Um, based on seeing certain groups of people as like a uh, surplus populations. Yeah, I mean, but, that's what um, she says in the beginning, right, about the LAPD. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead, go, go. Well, yeah, no, that's what she says in the beginning of the letter, right, is that um, the LAPD used the term NHI specifically to re refer to young black males um, and that they would use chokeholds on them and say that they actually died because something was wrong with their windpipe uh, biologically, you know? So again, like these... It returns, you know, the, the forms of violence, but also even just the justification, the language. And we have to study, you know, so we're, we're prepared and so we can bring the instruments we need to, to tear this thing down. Sorry, go ahead. No, heavy. No, I'm just terrible at conclusions and I could talk to you for so much longer, but I think I think this is a good place to stop. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. This is We Be Imagining. To our listeners, please like us, subscribe us, write some comments in the Apple section, and let's improve our, our ratings in the, in the algorithm. Um, and you can reach us at webeimagining at gmail.com. That's webeimagining at gmail.com. And again, this is Jay Khadija Budrakman with Alain Mandel, Dr. Joshua Bennett. Please check out his book, Ode. Um, thanks so much. Thank you. It's an honor and a joy. <laughs>